and welcome to Hope for the Family, a podcast from the Magdalene House, a recovery community for alcoholic women. We are a 501c3 nonprofit organization based in Dallas, Texas, and known by many as Maggie's. In this series, recovered family members share how they've been able to find peace and freedom as the loved ones of alcoholics and addicts through interviews and sharing their stories. For more information about our family support group, including weekly meetings, please visit magdalenhouse.org forward slash family. We're so glad you're here. Thanks for listening. Hello, podcast listeners. My name is Stephanie Crawford, and I am the host of this podcast, Recover Out Loud. And today on Recover Out Loud, we are going to be doing our series, Hope for the Family. So just for our listeners who do not know, our mission here is to help alcoholic women and their families, which means that we also have a family support group. And just like all of our other programs here, it is absolutely free at no cost. And so if you want more information about that, you can visit our website, www.magdalenhouse.org backslash family. I have on a special guest today, and I know I say that to you guys all the time, um, but it's true. So she is also a recovered alcoholic, um, and she made such an impact on on my life, so she's very important to me, and um, is still somebody that I can call to read inventory to or to 10-step when I need to, and I've actually done those things, um, even without her sponsoring me. And so she has an episode on here, which I will put in the show notes of Recovered Interviews with Alcoholic Women. She has also done our Breakfast Club, and she's going to be doing Saturday Steps up here. But on top of all of that, she also has um, experience from the family side. And so today we're going to have her on talking about um, the perspective from the family. And her name is Erica so, Erica, thank you so much for joining us. Yes. For joining me. And I'll just have you start off with kind of like some information about yourself, I guess, to qualify you in a sense and what led you into a place to need a family support group type setting. So originally, obviously, I'm in the AA program, but originally, I think I was about four and a half years sober and I started working on some kind of trauma work, which that was really fun um but started working on some trauma work and uh originally walked into the rooms of Al-Anon um because of my dad now my dad is not an alcoholic my dad grew up in an alcoholic home and so the way that I kind of had to spin that because it's kind of hard you know figuring out like if he's not an alcoholic how does it really affect me like this um but the way I had to look at it is like he was affected by alcoholism which then trickled into mine and his mm, relationship like and so it started there and then from there it spiraled into who is my husband um we've had a long road um of uh, you know we met in recovery we were sober together we relapsed together and then i got sober and he didn't and um it, i was able to kind of bring in some of the stuff that i had learned from Al-Anon into our marriage and into our relationship and then on top of that, um, we have a son, uh, my stepson, his oldest son, um, who is currently in treatment right now, that we're having to continue this road with Al-Anon and continue with that family support. Because one of the things I know is like, left to my own devices, like, I'm nothing, right? I'm going to mess this up. I'm going to cause a lot more problems than what needs to happen. But, but in saying all that, you know, I'd gotten to a place uh, before I'd walked into the rooms and was finally willing to do something about it. 
with the situation with my dad and um, with my husband, I just saw where I was trying to control every little thing, every little outcome. I was waiting for the shoe to drop. I was constantly in fear, right? And and I work the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous and, and it was a great program and it got me where I needed to be, but then I needed some extra tools in my toolkit that I didn't have. And so I was able to use, um, utilize that in order to kind of grow in those relationships or draw boundaries where I don't have relationships with those people today. Mm. So you started because of your, there's just, I already know some of your story. And so I'm <laughs> thinking of like all the things I want you to talk about. And it's just like kind of like where to start. You went in because of your dad. How did that program help you with that relationship? So at the time, whenever I uh, started Al-Anon with the dad stuff, um, I have a lot of abandonment issues. Um, and I truly believe that my dad did the best he could with, with what he had, right? Uh, I've never thought that I was a victim of, you know, this, this horrible dad. Um, later, what I found out was he's an adult child of an alcoholic, and he's mm-hmm. showing up like an adult child of an alcoholic would, right? And so for... For me, he and I did not have a relationship, Um, you know, about three weeks before I was going to walk down the aisle with my husband, he decided to not show up for whatever reason. I still haven't had that conversation with him today. Um, But a lot of the time I felt like, what did I do wrong? Right. Right. Like, why am I not enough? Why am I not worthy enough to have my dad being the only daughter? Right. Like, why wouldn't he want to have those experiences with me? And um, so he and I, by the time I got into Al-Anon, hadn't had a relationship for two years. And so you don't know. Sorry, I'm just like, you don't know why he didn't show up. I still don't to this day. And it's been this year will be nine years since uh, this upcoming year. So Henry and I just celebrated eight years in January. Congratulations. Thank you. And um, and so the last time I saw him was the Thanksgiving after our wedding. And I was so angry that I just couldn't even bring myself to ask why. So did you not know he was going to show up no. until your wedding day? Until my wedding day. Um, did you cry? That makes me want to cry. <laughs> <laughs> um, honestly, I didn't allow him to affect the day. Um, I was able to, you know, last minute ask my brother to walk me down the aisle. And, and of course, he showed up and stepped up in that role. And, and I'm very grateful for that. But yeah, I don't. I all I remember is is... I had called. I was like, hey, your shirt's ready to be picked up. He never picked up his shirt. Thank God him and my brother are the same size. So my brother wore the shirt and uh, my brother walked me down the aisle that day. And I had asked my brother why and he didn't really have much of an answer either. And so that's just kind of where it lied. That's so weird. Yeah. Now, I know you told me about this story, how you had called someone, Rain, I think her name is. Mm -hmm. In that conversation that you had, do you remember what I'm talking about? I do. So it was about three to four weeks after my wedding, and I had written inventory, and um, I'd written inventory on my dad probably a gazillion times, right? And Rain, I, I read this inventory to her, and and Rain asked, like, because this is kind of a reoccurring theme in my life, you know, um, things are going well with my dad, and then he kind of just disappears, and so. It's something that I've always been used to. Like, that's normal to me, right? Mm-hmm. Um, which is why I have abandonment issues. <laughs> and so, you know, Rain posed the question of like, you know, at what point are you going to put yourself out of that situation? At what point are you going to take a step back and say like, it's not okay for you to treat me that way or tolerate 
those behaviors because at this point the only person that's setting themselves up to fail in that is you right and so I had to take a look at that and from then I was like all right I'm not going to talk to him you know I'm not going to engage in a relationship and I didn't see him until that November of that year and when I saw him I just told him like hey I'd there's no reason to call. There's no reason to talk. Like I have nothing for, like I have nothing else to say to you. And I pulled out of my Nana's house that day and I haven't seen him. I haven't talked to him. Hadn't heard from him since. And, um, that was coming up on, I guess, eight and a half years. Wow. Yeah. Does that bother you? It did for a really, really long time. Um, I'd be lying if I said that little girl inside still wouldn't want to have that relationship with her father. But the thing is, is the, the amount of work that I've done on this and the amount of work that I've done on myself about my worth, like my worth doesn't lie in whether my dad loves me or not, right? Um, my worth doesn't lie whether my dad wants a relationship with me or not. Does it hurt? Sure, you know, but I can't take it personally, yeah. Like that's his stuff, right? And that's for him to work on. And you know, my 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 sponsor Martil has posed the question to me several times because I'll I'll every now and then I'll call her and be like, well, I think I want to start a relationship. And so she'll she'll lay it out there. She won't tell me not to or to. She says, if you want a relationship with this man, you have to be willing to accept him for who he is, mm-hmm. and how he's going to show up. And you don't know what that looks like now. Y'all haven't spoken in eight and a half years. She's like, but if it's the same person as before then you have to accept him there and the thing is is I can't accept a dad like that yeah and that's nothing personal to him that's not saying he's a bad guy like I think we all have our own demons that we deal with right and he and I have never had that close relationship for me to know what that is you know Mm -hmm. and so if anything like I pray for him I, I hope the best for him you know he has a great relationship with my two brothers and I love that for them but to, you know, to answer the original question is like, does it hurt? Sure. But is it something that I sit here and kind of dwell over on day to day? No. Right. And that's freedom. Yep. And that's where I want to be. Yeah. <laughs> so, okay. Before I like totally interrupted you, um, you were talking about by the time you got to al you had not spoken to your dad, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. And so start from, from there. So I was having a lot of feelings of, you know, like low self-worth, um, not being good enough. What's wrong with me? Why can't I? J- it was a lot of why can't I just be good enough or do the right thing or say the right thing in order for him to show up. And so, you know, a, a friend of mine was like, maybe you should look into Al-Anon because you're talking about like a relationship, right? And you're trying to be all these things for someone else mm-hmm. or you're trying to, you know, whenever I do have a relationship with my dad, like I try to act and, and, and perform at a certain level in order to, to get that love. Right. Or, you know, to make them want me. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I was like, okay, fine. You know, a lot of people go to Al-Anon for other reasons, but that's why I stumbled in there. And, um, and they welcomed you. Oh yeah, absolutely. They were like, come on in, we can help. We can do, you know, whatever. Um, I tried CODA because I did have some codependency, um, just because of like when I do have a relationship with my dad as long as the relationship is good I'm okay right and then whenever it's not good it's like crash and burn you know like I'm not enough it goes the whole tape will just like play over and over in my head and so when I got to Al-Anon I was like well this isn't for me right that's a first thought and so I had actually talked with um my sponsor so Martil she sponsored me in both Al-Anon and AA and um, I talked to Martil and I was like, look, I don't think this program really fits because my dad's not an alcoholic. 
Um, and one of the things she said was, is like, well, your dad was affected by alcoholism, right? And I'm like, absolutely. He grew up in, in an alcoholic home. And, <clears throat> and so I kind of put a spin in that of just like, I am powerless over alcoholism because that's what it is. Whenever mm-hmm. you look at the, the 12 steps, it talks about the alcoholism piece for the family. And alcoholism has been in my family line. My mom is recovered a recovered addict. She was an IV meth user, you know, up until I was 14 years old. And so for her, you know, I grew up in an addict home. My dad, you know, he grew up in an alcoholic home. And so like it just infested me, right, mm-hmm. um, from whenever I was a small child. And so because of those effects, there are things that I do and operate that alcohol, alcoholism has placed me in a ro- role that I was never designed to play mm-hmm. as a kid, as a teenager, and as an adult, right? And when an alcoholism took over my life, that's when, you know, I started to, you know, be a little bit more desperate to do things differently. But those, those behaviors still came out in my sobriety. Right. So how is working the steps in Al-Anon different than how you had worked the steps before? So, uh, and a lot of it was the control piece, right? Right. Because in AA, I was told I have no control. And that's just kind of the message that I heard is like, you don't have control. You got to let go of control, give it up to God, all the things, right? Whereas in Al-Anon, I still don't have that control, but I can set boundaries and I can have... And, and I can set what I tolerate in my relationships, whether that's me being on the spectrum of being a people pleaser and I will do what everybody else wants me to do and act how everybody else thinks I should act. And then I have no freedom in that either. Mm-hmm. Or I'm on the other end of the spectrum where I'm completely defiant <laughs> doing the opposite of what everybody thinks I should do. And I go from one extreme to the other. I was going to say, are you a people pleaser? I don't take you as a people pleaser. I can be, depending on the relationship. Okay. (laughs) I've never seen that Uh, side of you. I know. I'm more of the defiant. I'm going to show everybody that it's going to be this way. But yes, I will find myself not holding boundaries, uh, tolerating certain things in relationships that are not tolerable. What does that look like? Can you give an example? Yeah, absolutely. So... So like I, I've, I've had a friend in the past that she would start to gossip. It wouldn't be something that I wanted to do, but I would do it with her in order mm. to like, you know, have that friendship or whatever, because I don't, you know, didn't have a lot of friends or whatever the case may be. And so I'll participate in that. that makes and sense. then I later place my posi- myself in a position to where I'm harmed because yet here I am doing all this gossiping and I don't want to, but I'm doing it so I can fit in or I can be a part of or I can please that person rather than setting a boundary in that relationship and if the boundary is not respected saying like hey maybe this is not a relationship I need to be a part of what does a boundary look like in that situation of if you have a friend who's gossiping I'm just thinking of a sponsee of mine who has like this thing where people gossip at work and anyways so what would a boundary look like in that situation so the best way that I handle it, and, and this looks different for everybody because I'm more just kind of forthright and straight to the point and direct, is I tell people like, hey, I'm not going to participate in gossip. And usually that kind of stops people right. on their tracks of like, what? what? Um, but if you're a non-confrontational person, I'm pretty confrontational, so that doesn't bother me. There are people out there that do not like confrontation and would be terrified to say that, right? Mm-hmm. Is like, hey, you know, hey, that person isn't here. Maybe we shouldn't talk about them. Hmm. You know, and kind of just lightly put it in there. Um, now, if it continues, and that's where I would say you'd have to be a little bit more direct. Right. No, okay, that makes sense. I can see that for sure. So you worked the steps 
with Martiel. Mm -hmm. And what did you find through that process? So we used um, uh, Al-Anon's literature. I know Mm -hmm. some people work the steps through AA, AA, you know, the big book and change drinking for thinking and things like that. But what I learned is how obsessive my thoughts can be. Mm. And um, when I am obsessing with my thoughts, whether it's with my marriage, whether it's with my kiddos, whether it's with, I mean, and I also, during this time frame with the dad stuff, I was also in the middle of dealing with my youngest son, Corbin, who's nine years old now. Um, but at the time he was five and he was diagnosed with ADHD mm-hmm. and they were putting him on all these different medications. And I was trying to not play the doctor and I was trying to, you know, my son in kindergarten stands up in music class and says, I'm so stupid. I want to kill myself, you know? And so in the midst of dealing with all the trauma stuff, dealing with that, I had to learn how to let go of that situation and, you know, having to have, you know, parent meetings and stuff. So it really helped with kind of all, all the relationships that I had. But what I learned was, is my obsessive thinking and how I absolutely have no control over what my thoughts are. Because for a long time, I would judge myself based on what those thoughts would be. And I've had to kind of come to a place like a thought is a thought. Mm-hmm. And if I give it any more thought than what a thought is, I give it a lot of power. Mm-hmm. And those obsessive thoughts where the tape plays over and over and over again, I need some tools in order to stop that. I need some tools to kind of break that. And so what I have to look at is where is that thought process going? You know, am I trying to like think through certain things in order to control someone else's life, whether it's my kiddos at nine years old or the stepson at 19 or my husband, you know, who's 37, like I have no control over what other people are going to do, right? I have none whatsoever, Um, even in my own kid's life. Now I can parent and I can guide and I can put principles in their life. But it's a whole nother ball game when it's your kid so and they're true. they're walking through mental health issues or they're walking through addiction issues because as a parent we know what's best mm-hmm. we know what's right we know what you what you don't need to do but what alan on you know going through that process has also taught me is that i don't know what's best at the end of the day <laughs> i do a very bang up job of managing my own life much less someone else's and so handing over your child is very scary. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had to do that when my kid was five years old with mental health between ADHD and anxiety. And at five years old, that's heartbreaking to watch. Oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I'm going to cry. I know. I'm like, we're going to have to put this kid in a psych ward at this age. Cause it happens. Like you mm-hmm. see it. And, um, and like, even with, you know, Jacoby, um, we had to we, at 16 years old, we were asking to leave the house. Um, and that had to be hard too. Yeah. My, my dear friend, uh, Shay, um, always tells me, uh, I'm the Al-Anon once removed in that situation. What does that mean? So what that looks like is, is I'm more codependent on my husband who's codependent on his son. Uh Right. So I'm the Al-Anon once removed in that situation. And so I want to control Henry and what Henry does in regards to how his relationship should look like with his son. Um, and it's very difficult. (laughs) That's almost harder to deal with than just being like, okay, I'm codependent on this person. It's like, no, I'm codependent on the person that's codependent on that person. And so it's, it's, it's a lot. Yeah. Yeah. I remember the first time somebody called me codependent, I was so offended. Are you a loved one of an alcoholic? Our family support group serves as a community for friends, loved ones, and family members of alcoholics to learn about alcoholism, understand how to help an alcoholic, and experience an improved quality of life regardless of the alcoholic's recovery. 
We have weekly support meetings that meet virtually and in person, as well as a monthly speaker meeting. To find out more about our family support group, visit magdalenhouse.org family. Did it take you a minute to realize that maybe you are codependent or have you always been aware of that? For me, how do you answer that? I guess what it looked like for me was, is I knew there was something going on because I wasn't finding freedom with the 12 steps of AA. Mm -hmm. I knew there was something there, whether it was trauma, whether it was the codependency, whether it was, you know, um, because I'm also an adult child of an alcoholic. Like I didn't know what it was and I just knew I needed more tools in my toolkit and so at four and a half years sober, I was so beaten and broken again, right? Mm-hmm. I had kind of hit this surrender spot where I was like, what I'm doing is not working. I'd went back through the work. And after going back through the work and seeing like the 12 steps are great. The 12 steps are designed to remove the mental obsession and give me some principles to live by. But that wasn't enough. Mm-hmm. And so by the time I had gotten to that place of surrender again, I was pretty open like I didn't have any prejudices towards codependency you know I knew from prior inventories and doing six steps that I had saw my character defect right. which is a control freak which yeah. is the same thing as, same co- thing as you know? codependent I guess yeah. <laughs> so it was just kind of like but a lot of these words controlling and- just seems more fluffier (laughs) well I I think for me like whenever I heard this I heard that as weakness this is all delusion by the way I'm not saying that this is absolutely true this is my sick brain but controlling I was like that seems more like strength like assertive and then like codependent I felt you're calling me weak Mm. does that make sense Mm -hmm. not true but that's how I took it yeah and that's the thing with our industry right like you know the treatment industry you hear certain words and they get these negative connotations like enabling has such a negative connotation um you know codependency um you know those kind of words and and it's nothing that anyone's doing wrong it's just when when a parent has a kid that's gone to you know six different treatment centers and they've been told by all these professionals that they're codependent and they're enabling by the time they get to you know somebody else they're just like I'm tired of hearing it. And so that's where that kind of, for me, where that prejudice really kind of comes in is this. And a lot of people don't understand, like, with codependency, all it means is, you know, being reliant on someone that has an illness, Mm. right? Like, there's some sort of reliance that I've placed on this sick individual that I can't can't say no, that I can't have that reliance. There's a barrier there. And I'm just thinking of Kate and me. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) (laughs) I think you told me one time that I was like Kate Reliant or something. Yeah. And then Dawn told me it again. Yeah. There you go. (laughs) So I was like, maybe it's true. Uh, Yeah. 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 And it it happens, right? And we don't see it. And that's the thing is like codependency and especially with alcoholism, they go hand in hand. They feed right into each other. And you'll find that a lot, um, even with people that have been sober some time, that will have these relationships with friends that have relapsed or significant others that have relapsed. There's just this reliance that's there that's there that I need them to be okay in order for me to be okay. And and that's where a whole, you know, the the obsessive thinking comes into play. The uncontrollable actions start to happen because I'm I'm reacting impulsively. And that's kind of what I saw within my marriage. That's what I saw, you know, especially like with my my son whenever he was going through the mental health stuff. Because you can even become that with people that just have mental health. Right. You know. I mean, um, how hard would it be not to be that way with your child yeah. going through mental health? Yeah. 
goodness yeah and and that was the thing is like i was calling the school every day and i'm like oh, how's he doing today i mean that year he'd went to the nurse's office 37 times in a matter of you know a month wow. and so it's just you know your anxiety's up there there's no freedom in that and right. whenever i was in that spot i knew i needed freedom because for me ultimately it means like i will take a drink and for those that do have codependency or you know are, are struggling with a loved one that is addicted to, to alcohol or anything like that they you know people don't realize this but like there are people that die from codependency too like they get so stressed out they have heart attacks they end up in the hospital they you know start doing crazy things for their kids you know like mm -hmm. you know putting themselves in very dangerous situations that could get them hurt like a lot of time we think you know, oh, with a codependent, you know, they don't, they don't suffer like we do and they do. It's funny that, I mean, not funny, but I'm glad that you said that too, because Kaki and Kristen, you know them? Mm -hmm. Well, Kaki did the steps um, on the family side and that was one of the realizations that she had and that she talked about whenever she did Breakfast Club is for so long she would be like, it's not life and death for them but after she experienced it she was like no it absolutely is life and death like I got extremely depressed you know like I was suicidal like all of these things and it's just something that you don't think about very often yeah you don't because what you because the focus is on the other person right. right my focus is so much on my husband or my kiddo or my stepson or you know what my dad has done or not done right my focus is on them and in the meantime everything internally is just going crazy and that's where depression comes in that's where anxiety comes in I mean I know families that you know won't go outside and like socialize with other people because what's going on and then they're mm -hmm. isolated and they're in their dark home you know just waiting for the phone to ring for that that ki their kid to call and say that they're alive or they're waiting on you know somebody from the morgue to call to come identify them in a you know body bag that was my mom's experience I remember when I sat down and told you know made amends to my mom when I got sober and I had asked her, I was like, is there anything that I've left off? And she's like, yeah, you did. And I was like, oh, great. <laughs> what did I leave off? What did I not remember? And she said something that was so important, which was you didn't make an amend or you didn't say that you were wrong for stealing my time. And she's wow. like, I can't tell you how many times when you were gone at 14, 15, 16 years old that I was waiting to get that call from, from somebody at the morgue to come, you know, that I needed to identify your body in a bag and the, so the, the sleepless nights that I had right because that's the reality she was up against and um and, and we don't we don't think that those stressors you know can cause us you know as codependents or as people who need support because we want to do it all on our own mm -hmm. you know we can do it by ourselves and we can't yeah no I remember my mom like telling me too like I can't sleep like I'm up like physically sick all night like worrying and uh, I was just so selfish yeah you know thinking she's being overly dramatic she's lying it's not true I'm not doing anything wrong you know and like how wrong I was yeah right yeah and that's kind of what Henry and I have had to experience you know these last three years with mm -hmm. with our oldest is just before we put him into treatment we got a call at like 12 30 at night and both of us wide awake you know and he had gotten pulled over thankfully <laughs> it was just a, a ticket but still like the heart rate and then we couldn't go back to sleep because then we're like, oh my God, what's going to happen next? You know, you know, all the thoughts and that's that obsessive thinking, right? The obsessive thinking starts with, you know, the action that the, the alcoholic or the, the person that you're codependent on, because then I'm worried about Henry and is Henry going to get enough sleep tonight to where he can show up to work and do the things that he needs to do. And it just goes and it goes and it goes. 
And so I have to have freedom from that mm-hmm. because for me, if I'm like that, I cannot operate at all. Right. Like I can't show up and be a mom. I can't show up and be a wife. I can't show up as a sponsor. I'm lucky enough if I even get out of bed the next day because I just, I wear myself out. It's mm-hmm. physically it is exhausting. Yes. It's physically exhausting, mentally exhausting, emotionally exhausting and spiritually exhausting. Mm-hmm. Um, and at a certain point, and that's what I reached is that certain point of just like, I can't live my life this way. Mm-hmm. I did not get sober to live my life this way. If this is what sobriety looks like, I don't want it. Right. And that's, that's where my head process had gotten to, you know, at like six and a half years sober, because I was trying to get these tools and I was trying to do all this work on myself and like focus on me. And, um, you know, at six and a half years sober, it wasn't, Oh, I'm going to go take a drink. It's like, Oh, I'm done. Mm-hmm. Like I'm done with life, you know, planning, you know, getting a will prepared. So, you know, that's my where my obsession goes. Yep. It doesn't go to a drink anymore. Yeah. And, yeah. The, and the book is very clear. It tells us self will kill us, mm-hmm. not drink. Right. Self. Yeah. And oh my God. That, I always knew that, but sometimes you just have these moments where you're like, yeah, for sure. Yeah. And it, and it, and it gets there and then especially with those thoughts. And so, you know, like I said, the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous are great, but at a certain point, there's some other tools in my toolkit that I need. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it makes sense. Now, I want to, I do want us to talk about your experience, like with your husband and, you know, the relapse and all of the stuff that has happened with that. But I do want to ask you a question. What's the difference between having freedom and being able to be okay, regardless of the other person is okay? And then like being sociopathic and not having feelings at all. Cause I'm, I'm serious. I'm sure. Cause some people are going to be like, how can you be okay? Regardless of your child is okay. That, you know, like that's doesn't make sense. Yeah. So I get this question a lot. Do you really? I do. Okay. Cause sweet. I work, I work with families, um, in, in my business. And so I get that, fam- you know, I get that question a lot. Like, what, what do you do? Just have a light switch right. and turn it off or yeah. you psycho. And it's like, no. So there's a difference in feeling feelings and then your feelings and emotions driving your decisions. Mm-hmm. Right. And I learned that in, in Al-Anon because before I got to Al-Anon, I couldn't identify how I felt. I couldn't pinpoint what it was that I was feeling. The only feeling that I could identify was anger. Mm-hmm. And the reason I like to be angry is because I felt in power and control. Right. right. So anger became a solution for me instead of like an actual feeling. So when I was asked, how do you feel? I'd be like angry. I'm angry. I'm irritated. You know, all the words that come with that. And so when I went through the work in Al-Anon and I, and I love the inventory process and that too is because it really focused on what are the feelings that come up with the effects, right? So you've got column one is the who, column two is the why, column three is the effects. And then there's feelings that are tied with that, mm-hmm. right? So if, you know, it affects my self-esteem and I feel not good enough, that makes me feel sad. If, you know, it affects financial, you know, stuff, then I'm in fear. Like I'm fearful. Right. And I was able to start identifying how I felt. But what I also saw was how those feelings drove my, my part. Right. Mm -hmm. And that's where my, you know, in in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, it says my mistakes, Al-Anon talks about my part. And that's kind of where that came from. And so that's what, that's what drove my part, which is why I wouldn't draw boundaries or why I wouldn't, you know, step up and say something for myself or why I would people please or why, you know, all these things like, why I did this was based off emotion. Mm-hmm. And so when it comes to being at a place to be okay is I have to identify how I feel first and understand that feeling. 
And why am I feeling that feeling? And a lot of the times it's tied to my belief systems, which come up in column three, right? Mm -hmm. That affects, you know, I believe I'm not good enough. I believe I'm unworthy, which those things make me sad. They make me angry, right? Whatever the feeling is that's tied with that. And when I'm able to identify that feeling, I don't have to react based on the thought or based on the belief system or based on the feeling. I can say, hey, you know what? I feel sad right now. And I feel sad that, you know, my stepson's having to walk through what he's having to walk through. Or I feel sadness that, you know, my husband had relapsed back in 2013, right? Like I could identify that feeling. But what I, what I had to build and, and get to a place of is trusting whatever process it was that I was walking through, right? Mm-hmm. Whether that trust is the process, higher power, nature, whatever it is, whatever the bigger thing is out there for whoever it is. For me, it's God. And I had to trust God with that person. Like mm-hmm. I feel sadness, right? I feel pain. Because a lot of the time what happens is I can't handle what I feel. So therefore I go and I try to fix the other right. person to make myself feel comfortable. Right. Because when I feel feelings, I feel discomfort. Mm-hmm. And if I can change you and get you to act or show up the way that I think you should, or if you'll do this, this, and this, then I will be okay. And I don't have to feel my feelings because I'm focused on you. But when I'm kind of put in a position where I have no choice but to focus on how I feel, what are my belief systems, how does it affect me, then I don't have time to focus on what they're doing and how they're showing up. But I'm still feeling those feelings. Mm. Just because I let go doesn't mean it doesn't hurt, right? Like I think I said earlier, like, you know, just because I don't have a relationship with my dad, I'd be lying to say that it doesn't hurt to not have that relationship, right? right? It doesn't mean that I don't feel sad at times when I see my husband get to be a father to his daughter, those Mm -hmm. things hurt, but I can still be happy for them in that same instance. Mm -hmm. You know, I, you know, the old me prior to this would get jealous and that's because I wouldn't be able to identify what I felt. Mm -hmm. I would get jealous of their relationship versus looking at it and saying, you know what, I feel pain and sadness because I didn't have that. Yeah. And I can kind of get an understanding and a new perspective on it, but it takes work. You know, it took a lot of like, because, I mean, it took me a while. It took me probably a year and a half in Al-Anon to finally start identifying feelings, which was not easy to do because yeah. I, don't like, I don't like to feel feelings. No human being does. But what a lot of the time what happens is, especially, in, and Henry and I do this all the time, is Henry will feel something. Like, he'll come in all short and huffy and puffy. And then me, I start feeling stuff. And because I'm feeling stuff, I transfer my feelings onto him, right? And I'm just like, what's wrong with you? Why are you acting this way? Why, what, what's going on? What happened today? You know, and I'm transferring my feelings onto him, which he has no place to have my feelings. So whenever you look at, when you think about relationships, there's a line. And what's on my side of the line is my program, my sponsor, my feelings, you know, my stuff, like all my stuff. And what's on his side of the line is his stuff. And the moment that I start transferring my feelings onto his side of the line, that's when, that's when I start creating problems because I'm feeling a certain way. I want him to show up a certain way. He's not showing up that way. So therefore I'm feeling even more discomfort and I'm causing and creating problems. And that's where you fall into like the self-defeating games, right? Mm-hmm. Playing the victim, uh, you know, I'm going to get you before you get me, you know, and all that stuff ties in together. Yeah. Um, Stepping so. on toes and setting the ball rolling kind yeah. of thing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so it takes me having that time to focus on, okay, Erica, what are you feeling right now? Because he walked in angry and mad or whatever because he's had a rough day, may not have anything to do with me. Why do I feel the need to make sure that he's okay? Right. What am I feeling? Mm-hmm. What am I feeling when he's not okay? 
And that's what I have to look back at because if I can identify what I'm feeling when he's not okay, then I can focus on that and ask myself, okay, why am I feeling that way? That's actually a good, let's rewind, (laughs) you know, years ago, whenever you guys were dating and this relapse happened. And can you talk about that whole thing? Yeah. So Henry and I met in recovery. He had 23 days sober. I had a year and a half sober. And so he tells everybody I 13th stepped him. So take it at whatever you will. Um, (laughs) And so he and I started dating. Um, Within three months, I got pregnant with our son, Corbin. And Henry, I guess that was, I guess that would be December is when I got pregnant. And then in February, Henry relapsed and he went missing and I was actually dog sitting for my sponsor at the time and I left there at like two and a half months three months pregnant and I left from her apartment and I went and tried to find him because he went missing for like three days and so I'm driving around I steal the dope man's phone and this is all stone cold sober right I I, at that time I would probably I would have had two years sober on June 2nd and this was like February and so I'm driving around I steal the dope man's phone I'm you know doing all these crazy things and finally he appears like three days later and I'm like why did you do that right now keep in mind at this point like I didn't have any sponsees I'd never practiced the 10th step I had never um, I'd sent nightlies here and there I wasn't really in communication with my sponsor so I was basically sponsoring myself and so he and I made the decision to go get high together right and and that's what we did and and I did that for about three months uh while I was pregnant and on May 25th 2012 which is my sober date now I was at a spot where I was completely broken again and there's nothing worse than going back out when you have a head full of AA it is literally the worst um stick man will just kind of play over and over and over in your mind and so I kind of surrendered and and he didn't right and um I started working with Marlena and you know, she kind of helped me with some God reliance, right? Like Marlena was your sponsor mm-hmm, for oh. the first year. Yeah. And I she had just walked through a very similar experience oh, yeah. with, with her kiddo, um, and father. And so, and so she had some experience and so she was sharing that with me and she kind of helped me get through the, that part with Henry. And when I was about eight months pregnant, I gave Henry an ultimatum. You either go to treatment or you need to leave. Um, so of course he picked the easier, softer way and went to treatment and he went to treatment for about 30 days. He got out two days before Corbin was born. He got out, he stayed sober for about six months. After six months, he came home and he was high and I knew what I had to do because I had set that boundary. Now at that point I hadn't really done any Al-Anon or really worked with, you know, anyone in that regard other than Marlena. And so I kicked him out and he and I were not together for about four or five months. And that was in March of 2013. And he got sober April 10th of 2013. And he started coming around a little bit and seeing Corbin and, you know, all those things. And then God saw fit for us to be together. We got married in January of 2014 and it all kind of transpired from there. So, so he, you let him come around because he relapsed after Corbin was born. Mm -hmm. When did you feel safe letting him come back around? I want to say it was, I know he had 30 days sober whenever he started coming back around. God, that was so long ago. (laughs) It's been nine years. Yeah, I think he had 30 days sober. I mean, I was still pretty naive, you know what I mean? Like I was still kind of new at all of it and, um, 
he would come see Corbin and then he was staying and living with someone in AA out in Paris where we were at and he was going to meetings and it's a small town there so everybody knows everybody knows what everybody's doing so I, I could see in his his footwork that he was doing something different he and I got back together in July of that year mm-hmm. um and so the end of July I guess beginning of August I'm sure that experience was probably pretty traumatizing probably you know uh it was it it definitely was a lot you know there's been a lot there's been a long road with henry and i you know a lot of people are i love it whenever i hear people in recovery they're like well henry and erica did it and i'm like you have no idea what we went through um because it's like we're not the we're not the norm right? right like most people are like wait a year before you get in a relationship you know all the things and because i'm you know i don't follow the rules I, I did everything backwards, you know, and, and it was a long road. And even with like, he has his trauma that he's walking through. I had my trauma that I walked through. Like we have stepped on each other's toes and we have hurt each other. But at the end of the day, like we love each other and we're willing to fight for it. Mm-hmm. And that's a lot of what our relationship looked like is fighting to make this work. And that may be wrong. I don't know. <laughs> well, I think it's one of those things that like, you can't really say, Unless you're in the situation. Yeah. You know. Well, and I think, you know, our experience has shown us is that God has saw fit for us to be together up to this point. And, mm-hmm. you know, like I said, we have done some wild things and um, to each other and have had to walk through it with one another. And, you know, through that process, like it's made our relationship stronger. Was there this fear or that it was going to happen again? Yeah. Probably for the first two years, I was kind of waiting like when's you know I grew up in an alcoholic home so waiting for that shoe to drop and so um I did the same thing with him but I finally got to a place I probably when we moved back to the Dallas area is whenever I was just kind of like look if it's gonna happen it's gonna happen and the fear wasn't there because it's like I've already done it I've already walked through the hard stuff because you know I kind of waited for when am I gonna get the call that I need to you know come identify him or you know whenever he was out there using and I didn't know what that was gonna look like or how I was gonna be able to handle that or walk through that but God has a plan so it took two years before that was away yep was that two years of you guys being together or two years of him being sober two years of him being sober yeah and did you try to like manage and control his recovery at all absolutely when we first moved down here he and his sponsor and God rest, you know, his old sponsor, God rest his soul. He, he passed away a few years ago. Um, but he and I did not like each other. And um, Henry and I still laugh about it today. I mean, his sponsor was a great guy and he was, he was Henry's best man in our wedding and stuff. But the way that they did sponsorship looked a lot different than the way, I, you know, what I grew up in in sponsorship. And it was very rigid and very, you know. Um, him or you? Him. Oh. For him, mine was rigid, but they had like you know they had to wear suits and ties to oh, thing. like and that kind of rigid. Yeah, thing. yeah, yeah. Okay. Which I have no judgment on, but you know Henry and I just saw very differently in his program, and I thought he should be doing things, you know, figuring out his recovery for himself, not have someone telling him at three years sober what he needs to do and how he needs to do it and what it needs to look like. And so we fought a lot on that regard, and it was it it caused a lot of issues. <laughs> I will say. Do you try to control his recovery today? Does that come up again? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I tell him all the time he needs to write inventory. He's nice. one of those that can take six months and not write inventory and stay in that. Me, I'm like writing inventory three times a week. <laughs> yeah. But I have to kind of, that's where I have to let him do him. So when that comes up, you try not to act on it? 
I try. Um, so there's this, there's a fine line of like, because he and I are both in recovery, right? There's this fine line that we have, and, and some people do this in their marriage, some people don't, that are in recovery together. If his stuff starts affecting what I do in my life, then I can set some boundaries around it. So like if he's resentful at, you know, Joe or whoever, and he's bringing that home and he's yelling at the kids, right? Because mm. he's resentful at whatever so-and-so did to him and it's going on for weeks. Okay. Days. Um, I don't do weeks. <laughs> then I will say like, Hey Henry, like you're showing up in this way with the kids and, and it could have something to do, but he and I have that relationship where we'll, we can talk to each other like that. Some people don't, some people keep their recovery very separate. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's just finding that balance. Now, you know, we don't ever say you need to go call your sponsor or, you know, get into that. I mean, we did when we were newly sober and stuff, but we just don't. Yeah. That doesn't come up as much today. Yeah. I think, again, it's like one of those things where everybody has their own way of doing things and it kind of just like whatever works for you works for you. Yeah. Now, I do remember whenever Isaac, you know, God rest his soul, had mm-hmm. the grand idea that he didn't need AA anymore. Mm-hmm. And I about lost my shit, you know. Um, and what do you know? He did. Yeah. And then he would talk to people who didn't do AA anymore, but mm-hmm. were still sober. And that would co-sign his oh, yeah. belief. And so anyway, like he fell into that whole like being of service to your family and showing up for your family and providing for your family. And then like that's enough. And I had experience as a mom not being able to stay sober. So I knew that that wasn't enough. But he didn't and now he's not here right I know that was something you and I had worked on a lot was like kind of like I would see things and I would bring them to you and it was all about like what he was doing and in his recovery or what he wasn't doing in his recovery and it is it's it's very hard to because you have this false sense of I was talking to someone about this but it's like we can fall into that if if this person dies like like Isaac did I want to know that I did everything I could yeah and all that is is like some false delusion that I have some sort of power yeah and I think that's the 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 biggest thing even with you know like even for Henry and I today right is you know with with my stepson is like we wanted to be able to say like hey we've we've done everything we could but at the end of the day like we have no control. Right. Right. You and I can walk out of here and drop dead, you know, mm-hmm. within five minutes. And, mm-hmm. and we have no control over that. Right. Right. It's just when it comes to alcoholism, it gets so much more scary. Right. Or when it's mental health, it's so much more scary. Right. Because the chances are a lot higher. Mm-hmm. And and so, yeah, it's just this false sense of this yeah. false idea that's just not there. Yeah. I know when I started dating again and the guy that I'm dating is in recovery and I found out he was like a heroin addict and I brought it to like my therapist or my sponsor and I was like, but he's a heroin addict. That means he can die. (laughs) (laughs) So morbid. Uh, And I think my therapist or don't remember, but they're just like, no, we're not going to do that. Yeah. Stop. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) We're not even going to entertain that. Well, and that's that obsessive thinking, right? Right. That's exactly what, you know, when we talk about a mental obsession, when it comes to our thinking, that's it right there. Mm -hmm. We we start telling ourselves lies of things that haven't even happened yet. Yeah. Right? Like, oh my God, they're doing heroin. They're going to die. Okay. Isaac didn't do heroin. And And he died. And he died. You know what I'm saying? Like, you have evidence and facts, right? And so it's like, that's where 
I've got to get a hold of what my thoughts are, you know, mm-hmm. and not that I can control my thoughts because I can't. But a thought is a thought. And if I give it any more power than that, it's going to take over. So what do you do if somebody is listening and they're like, how do I not go into obsessive thinking? What do you, what do you, what does somebody do? So, and I think for everybody, it looks different, right? Depends on what kind of program you work. You know, there's Al-Anon, there's Regeneration, there's, you know, Celebrate Recovery. There's, there's so many different programs, PALS, all this different stuff, right? And they have different tools and it's about what tools are going to work for you, right? Some people can meditate and, you know, let it go. And I'm just, that is not me. My brain does not operate that way, right? right? Some people can pray and let it go. Me, I have to look at what is the fear that's driving this thought? Like, what is, what is going on internally with me? What is that fear? I have to start asking myself some questions, right? So if my head starts going into, you know, oh my God, they're a heroin addict, they're going to die, you know, blah, blah, blah. Then I have to look at, okay, what is the fear? The fear is death. Like, I'm afraid this person's going to die. For me, that's putting that, that fear, you know, putting fear on paper and looking at it and, and identifying the feelings that are coming with that. Because what am I feeling, right? Mm-hmm. Other than just fear. Mm-hmm. I'm scared. I'm sad. I'm hurting I'm still in pain of a past relationship of what I've walked through right and I got to identify that in order for me to work on those past relationships you know for a long time I was in fear of like oh is Henry going to cheat on me right Um, because whenever he relapsed that last time he did and and that came ahead a couple years later whenever he made amends for it (laughs) and so at that point I was like okay I gotta I gotta work on this and because of what I would feel with my insecurities around being you know being around henry was stuff for my past relationship Mm because my past relationship with my ex he constantly cheated right like that was something he did which feeds into the belief system that i'm not good enough i'm not enough i'll never be worthy enough for any man to love me whether it's you know some guy that i meet or my own father or my own kid whatever like i will never be lovable right Mm -hmm. and that is a belief system that i've carried with me my whole life And I've got to take a look at that to see what feelings come with that. Because if it's, you know, child work stuff, you know, like I'm looking at myself as a child and like at five years old, having the belief you're not lovable is like heartbreaking and it's sad. And I've got to grieve that, right? Like there's, there's a process that I have to go through with it. So I have to identify first, where is this thought process even coming from? Mm -hmm. And if I can focus on that, I don't have to focus down the rabbit hole that my thought is going down. You know, um, now if I'm in the middle of doing 100, 150 things like I normally am, sometimes prayer will work, right? I'll pray and ask God like, hey, remove that thought. And I'll just kind of stick, okay, I'm going to stay in the present moment. What is the task that I need to do? Like, so it it really just kind of depends on what works for you. Mm -hmm. But it's being willing to dig with inside yourself and find out what's going on. Because if my, if that obsessive thinking's going, it has something to do with me, not what the other person's doing at all. Because that person's going to do what they're going to do. So when did you like get over the fear of Henry cheating on you? Um, well, it was funny because one day I called my sponsor like for the fourth time in a row and she said, Erica, if he's going to cheat on you, he's going to cheat on you and there's nothing you can do about it. And something clicked. Shots fired. The light bulb went off and I was like, okay, you're actually not wrong. Yeah. (laughs) You know, and I finally got to that place where I was like, you know, he's not my ex because I'd written, you know, inventory. I'd looked at a bunch of stuff and. But having that person that I can roll stuff off of to kind of put my thoughts back in check was helpful. And yeah. the light bulb went off and I was like, okay. Yeah. Well, I know like something that I kind of, that helped me whenever I was cheated on um, was like knowing that like that actually didn't have anything to do with me. Mm-hmm. Um, does that mean like that 
I didn't initially have those feelings like maybe if I could have done something different or whatever or if I'm not good enough but then like at the end of the day like I knew that it had nothing to do with me Mm -hmm. and I actually know that he actually still loved me even whenever he was doing those things Mm -hmm. and that brought me some kind of peace like today I know that like if I'm cheated on it has nothing to do with me it has everything to do with them yep Right. But that's also because I was a cheater. Yeah. <laughs> and so I know that firsthand. <laughs> yeah. have not cheated in sobriety, just so everybody knows. <laughs> uh, that was me in active addiction. But, yeah. and I know that it had everything to do with me and nothing to do with the person I was with. Yeah. So, uh, well, we have about five minutes and I wanted us to talk about your stepson, but I don't think we can talk about all of that in five minutes. So what I will do is I will post the link to the breakfast club recording in the show notes so if you want to hear about that story and her experience around that it's super powerful it's so good i highly recommend it i'll post that in there so then y'all can listen to that um is there anything that we haven't talked about that you want to talk about that you think is important that we hit on well that's a loaded question (laughs) um no i mean i think ultimately you know what it boils down to is knowing that I have feelings, right? And my feelings will drive my actions if I don't, if I'm not aware of what those feelings are. And the biggest key piece in that is like having a relationship with something bigger than me. No differently than I had to have that relationship whenever I got sober. And, you know, that's scary for a lot of new families, especially ones that have this idea of God or whatever the case may be. But every program that I'm, that I've seen, every family support, you know, all those things, like, there's got to be faith in something bigger, mm-hmm. whatever that may be. And, you know, and I, and I love this because I listened to Steve Furtick uh, at Elevation Church. And the thing that he said the other day that has kind of just stuck with me is like faith without moving forward is having no faith at all. I love that. Right. And so it's like in order to have faith, I have to be willing and able to move forward and I have to have hope in something in order to do that. And if I have hope in a sick person, God, I'm there. That is not going to work. Right. So I have to find something bigger than what the disease of alcoholism is and it has to be pretty powerful because Mm -hmm. with alcoholism it's very cunning baffling and powerful as we read all the time and you know with that comes a lot of self-awareness and a lot of self-searching and when I can put my focus on me I don't have to be so focused on them and what they're doing and what they're not doing and I find it actually more helpful to them Mm -hmm. right like when I'm not on top of you know my stepson or on top of my husband about what they need to be doing in their life and I'm focused on my own they kind of figure it out one way or another they figure it out they have whatever experience they need to have and God doesn't need my help he doesn't he just needs me to stay out of the way and focus on me you know like the famous saying in AA is paint the fence while the house is on fire if I focus on what I need to be doing and I'm painting the fence like God's going to take care of the house I'm not a firefighter that's not what I do right he's got that taken care of I just got to stay focused on what I need to do for me so you said something in that do you feel like how it comes down to like having faith in something bigger than me just like you needed whenever you got sober so do you feel like going through this program and has actually strengthened your relationship with God absolutely because I've, I've had to let go of so much more right with with when I came in AA I had to let go of the alcoholism piece right this one part of my life that is completely in shambles and and the unmanageability of that but relationships I have to have, 
right? I have to have relationships on a daily basis, whether it's within a business, whether it's within recovery, whether it's within my family, like I have to maintain relationships and I don't know how to do that. Like I suck at it, right? And so for me, it has given me so much more freedom in that area to where I don't have to constantly, I guess, act on how I feel and ruin other people's lives because I can. Like my hurt, my shame, my fear, my guilt can affect the the other people around me without even me realizing it Mm -hmm. because that comes out in controlling ways, right? Like with my stepson, like we were in so much fear with him. And so from the ages of 12 up until he was 16 and asked to leave, like we controlled everything, you know? We made him go to church. We made him stay at home and like not go hang out with friends. Like we, we created a lot of where he's at. Like, and we have to take ownership of that because of fear. Mm. And I couldn't identify that back then. Now I know, right? Hindsight looking back and I'm like, oh my God, here we are, right? We didn't let the kid live. And so whenever he was given the opportunity to live, man, he went wild with it. And within three years, it, it you know, completely crashed, right? Mm. And thank God he's still alive. Not how old that is he? He's 19. Wow. Yeah. And so like for us, it's like, it's not that it's our fault that he turned to that. Right. But our fear contributed to where he's at today. And we have to take ownership of that. And I think that's the hardest part as a parent is being willing to take ownership and not fall into self-pity and guilt and shame. Mm-hmm. And that's difficult yeah. to do for sure. So I, I've been asking this a lot and I'm just going to ask it again. What's it's totally off topic, but it can always fit. What is your favorite line or favorite part in the big book? Uh, page 14 over to 15, um, where it talks about for if an alcoholic failed uh, to enlarge and perfect his spiritual life through work and self-sacrifice for others, then he certainly wouldn't survive the trials and low spots that are ahead. Mm. My favorite line out of the book. I will be buried with that line. Really? I already told Henry. Yeah. That's awesome. In, in a closed casket. I'm not doing open casket. <laughs> I made that clear too. All right. So we all, it's on recording. We all know that. Um, you know, I have to say that I love that line too. Um, but I've always loved it because it talks about perfecting and enlarging through work and self-sacrifice. After going through what I went through, what now sticks out to me is a certain trials and low spots ahead. Yep. You know, and that is something that... Um, I never really saw until after the fact. Or you see, but you just don't yeah. take seriously. Right. You yeah, know? absolutely. No Favorite line. Great line. All right. Well, it's been an hour. Thank you so much for this. Thank you for having me. What is the final thing that you would want to say to a struggling family member? Ooh, okay. <laughs> There's a lot, but. I know. <laughs> what, if, what if they were only going to hear this one part? This one part. What would you want them to hear? You're not alone. There are so many families out there that are walking through this on a day-to-day basis that feel so alone and feel like there's not any resources for them. And I feel like it's our responsibility as people who are in this industry and people who are in recovery um, to get the word out about the resources and educate parents and educate families that they aren't alone. Mm. Because I think that's the biggest thing that I see these families go through. Mm. Love it. All right. Again, if you have loved what you heard and you want to check out more from Erica, those links will be in the show notes. Also, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. I say this every single episode, so I'm going to say it again. It is more than the review. So what your review does is it puts something in the algorithm world to make this podcast more available. 
And so if this podcast is more available, we are able to give more hope to alcoholics and their families. And then what also happens because of that, not only are they able to hear experience strength and hope and learn that they're not alone, is they also get to learn about the free services that we provide at the Magdalene House. And so not everybody has the money or the resources um, to be able to seek professional treatment. And so everything that we offer here is at absolutely high quality care, absolutely no cost. And when I say high quality, I really mean it. Like the staff here is super talented. Um, The facility here is amazing and I'm very proud of the work that we do. But anyways, um, and we also have that family support group, which again is absolutely free. Um, And I'll put the link to that in the show notes as well. So leave us a review, share this with somebody that you think it would help, upload it to your Instagram stories and let us know what your takeaways were and tag the Magdalene House. And I will see you guys next time. Bye. is from the Magdalene House, a recovery community for alcoholic women. We are a nonprofit organization located in Dallas, Texas, and we provide comprehensive recovery services to alcoholic women at absolutely no cost. You can learn more and support our mission at magdalenehouse.org.